welcome, welcome, everyone. I'm Sean, and this is my lovely wife, Lindsay. Hey, guys. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom if you're celebrating Shabbat today and observing your day of rest. Hopefully, it's been good for you. And let us know in the comments if you can hear us. Uh, let us know how the sound is. So we're trying a little bit different setup so we can have a little bit more relaxed look, kind of out of studio, if you will. But we wanted to do a, a Q&A for everyone today. Um, a lot of people are home today. So we get a chance to hopefully get a bunch of people the opportunity to ask questions. So we get a lot of questions all the time. Um, we get questions through email, messenger, uh, comments on hundreds of comments on our videos. We get questions all the time and I can't answer them all. So this is my opportunity. We like to do Q and A's from time to time so that you can have an opportunity to ask us a live question and get a live response. And uh, cause some people, um, they don't like waiting. <laughs> <laughs> We get questions and, you know, they'll they'll be like, can you please answer me now? Please answer me. And I'm like, guys, I, I get more questions every day than I can answer. And uh, many of the questions are not simple answers. It's yeah. not, is this car blue? It's an advanced question with lots of scenarios and hypotheticals. And, you know, and then I have to go through and try to segment what they're asking. Um, it's it's not these are these are uh, essay type questions. You know, these are not yeah. simple questions. Plus the follow-up questions that are generated by the answer yeah. to the questions. Yeah, there's a lot in, a lot involved. So uh, thank you guys so much. Just want to give a big shout out and a big say we, we really appreciate and love all of you who have um, shared our videos, who are sharing our posts that we, when we express scripture and try to explain it, as well as people that are supporting us through Patreon and PayPal, everyone that's been actively supporting us, whether you're trying to get early access to the study guide or you just love what we do and you want to support us and say thank you. Um, we just, we big thank you from both of us. Yeah. You guys are a blessing. You're, you're keeping us going and being able to do what we're doing to provide the resources and be involved in the projects that we're in. So, um, yeah, just big, thank you. Big, big shout out. Big thank you. Yeah. And just to head off this eventual accusation that will be in the comments, we didn't choose this wallpaper. <laughs> this is part of the rental we're in. And so it's not Illuminati confirmed. You can screenshot that. <laughs> Uh, we didn't choose the wallpaper. It is loud and obnoxious, but the homeowners enjoy it and they even enjoy the pictures that are hanging on them. So we just leave it as is. Okay. We got our first question today. You ready? Yeah. So Abed from India, he's asking if the death is the last enemy to be defeated after the thousand year reign, he's got death in quotes, would, would be have non-veg food afterwards? Would I think he may? He's, he's asking about the death of animals. Sure. After yeah, just, I think he may have tried to say, would we have non-veg, non-veg food, non-veg food, maybe non-meat food is what he's trying to ask. Um, isn't it the death of animals? What do you think he's asking? The dichotomy of is he asking, are we just going to eat meat only or vegetables only? If death, is I don't the death know if he, I, I think um, English is his second language. He said yeah. he's from India. So I think he's trying to ask about death mm -hmm. after the millennial reign. If there is no more death, according to Revelation, then what about the death of animals? Sure. So. That's what I gleaned from it. Just want to make sure I'm on the same page. Yeah. I'm, okay. Because kind of a common cultural religious tradition in India is that they uh, do not, you know, they view the cow as sacred and lots of vegetarian beliefs in India, right? Yeah. So um, we've always understood the promise of the covenant to be the death uh, that is promised that will go away. Revelation 21.7 is the death of mankind. This is what Hebrews chapter 2 
uh, tries to expound to us is that all of mankind is in slavery to the fear of death. Um, Hebrews also speaks further on this in chapter 9, verse 27, that is appointed man once to die and then judgment. Um, and that's this is the the penalty, basically, that the Yahweh, the Father, the Creator announced <clears throat> to the beginning of mankind with Adam and Eve. And he's like, if you take this tree and eat it, surely you will die. Right. And so then this is where First Enoch chapter five, verses six through nine references the divine wrath or the, you know, the, basically referring to the death of that comes upon all mankind because we're in a fallen state. We're transgressing the father's laws. Um, and this is what Paul even alludes to in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Um, sin brings death. We understand this basic concept from Scripture. The promises given throughout start to finish of Scripture is to mankind, and nothing is enunciated specifically to the animals in the first-person narrative like it is from the Creator to mankind. Um, the animals get to partake since they're under the authority of mankind. They get to partake in the blessings that mankind receives. This is what Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, excuse me, Romans chapter 8. Let me go to it real quick. I'll pull it up on screen for one. This Romans chapter 8 is talking about when it speaks about the uh, the sons of, um, I apologize. Hang on, guys. Sons of uh, glory being revealed. Pull up this uh, site real quick so we can get you a. You know what? Guess what? I actually have the Romans contextual study guide that I can pull up. <laughs> Why am I pulling up a website? I've got my own resources. With <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me pull this up real quick if I can. And this will. <laughs> All right. So, so that's not it. One second. Huh. Where'd it go? I think you accidentally X'd out of it. Nope, it's right oh. here. So that's strange. Why is it not? Let me share it. Um, let's try this again. Huh. Try okay. an entire screen. Yeah, we're yeah. going to have to do that. And it's going to get flip it weird over. for a minute, so we can't see ourselves. But ultimately, guys, this is what we're going for, is uh, the promises to mankind. Um, and here, in Paul tries to address this in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're looking around verses 17 through 25. Um, it says, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. So we're going to be resurrected and glorified just as Yeshua was. I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but because of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until the present time. Now that not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Um, I don't not, think it's showing. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. I don't know why it's not. So sorry, guys, it's not showing. Go to the system. Oh, man, that's that's way too much. Sorry. Um, OK, so long story short, guys, um, the father. <clears throat> the father, uh, his ways, the, the, what he does on earth is what he does in heaven. He wants to come do on earth. This is the promise of the kingdom come. This is why Yeshua prayed in the, in the famous prayer in Luke 6, right? That you would pray that your, Lord, your, your, king, your will be done on earth as it is already being done in heaven, right? So part of that will that's being done in heaven is there is a process by which the father and the angels enjoy a fellowship meal according to the father's law. Right. So the Messiah was sent to become our high priest. Part of that position is that he does the job duties of a high priest. 
which is that he goes into the temple, as Hebrews 8 talks about, to minister on our behalf. And he does have the same requirements that all priests would have to bring forward a fellowship meal with the Father. And that those requirements are listed out in the Father's eternal law. Some things were made for food. Some things were not made for food. So the it's very interesting to me that um, there's a there's a belief system that's out there that says that if you haven't that that the restoration of all things must mean that the father is going to change what he already announced about what he made as food and what he didn't make as food is that suddenly we're going to have some kind of different biology that that doesn't work well with with an actual consumption of animals but we know that's not true because we tell we're, we're told we're prophesied by the messiah himself in matthew 22 1 through 4 that the wedding supper of the lamb, the fat and ox and the calves are slaughtered. So that's meat. And then he exemplified in John chapter 20, he exemplified in his resurrected glorified body, like we just read, read about, that we ourselves, we're going to be co-heirs with, we're going to be glorified with him in the same manner, that in his resurrected glorified body in John 20, he showed himself to the disciples and ate fish in front of them. So he's eating meat and seafood, right? Both things that are announced clean and as food. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, by the Father. So there is nothing in Scripture that would lead me to believe, personally, that the moment that we get to heaven and the restoration of all things happens and the kingdom comes down to earth and the glorified saints are living in southern New Jerusalem, and after the thousand-year millennial reign is over, and everyone who's ever going to be resurrected have will have been resurrected at that time, there's nothing that leads me to believe that he's suddenly going to change what he decided would be considered food that for both heaven and earth. Because I guess what I guess this kind of goes into the, the general idea of like this this segmented thought. It's not quite dispensationalism. It's not saying that God dealt differently just because of a different era. It, there's a it's it's a deeper rooted version of segmentism to where they think that God behaves differently in heaven right. than what He told man to do on earth. Well, they even think that man was told to behave differently in the garden right. versus when they were out of the garden. So. Well, there was clearly no meat and no animals dying in the garden. God's going to bring us back to the garden. You're, you're right? being sarcastic. Yes, but, I'm. Yeah. I think you know it's that's probably the root of it is that, and the the verse that says death came by sin. It's just, I mean, I think a lot of us were so divorced from animal husbandry in itself as a, a duty of mankind, and we're so attached to the idea of our pets. And I'm guilty of that. I mean, I really hope my dogs are all going to be resurrected with me, but I don't know that they're promised that. I think we have an emotional attachment to this idea of the death of animals and how if death is removed as part of these promises, that must include all the cute, fluffy animals. I would say, you know, we need to play that tape all the way through. I mean, if no animals are dying, I mean, what about them procreating then? There's nothing in scripture that addresses, oh, animals aren't going to procreate in the kingdom. So if they're not dying, I mean, think about the bunny population just as an easy example of what that would look like on the earth if there's no process of life and death for the animals. So even aside from our diets, which are clearly include the feasts, which clearly include the animals, there's also the practicality of if animals that, you know, have a lot of babies in each litter aren't passing away at any certain point, the earth is going to be literally overrun by them at a certain point. So yeah. that's the other kind of, I think that's the other tape that doesn't get played all the way through when you think about, oh, no more death, no more dying animals, no more sacrifices. So, you know, when it comes to false deception, it's interesting that the enemy 
the you know um, the rebellious one, Satan, and his the unclean spirits under his control, they constantly attack the judgments of the Creator. Yeah. Right. And they they try to sell God's decisions He made ahead of time about how this creation works. Those are His judgments. Right. He tries to sell those things to mankind as if they're unjust or a bad decision. Basically, he wants you to get you to doubt your creator's wisdom so that you can go to a different wisdom, which is not really wisdom at all. Right. Yeah. And so this is where I'm just reminded so many times of how the father says in the Old Testament so many times, you know, my ways are better than your ways. They're higher. They're superior. They're better moral character. They're I understand. I made everything. I understand how it works. My ways are higher than your ways. Right. So as well as he he asks Israel to trust his ordinances, statutes, and judgments. These are his decrees, things that he's already decided. This is how it should go. This is best for everybody involved. And the enemy comes through and they're always like, oh, you like this? No, actually, you should do it this way, right? He does, Like on a large scale, he does this with communist ideals, mm-hmm. right? Which assaults the person's ability for working six days a week, being responsible for your own nature, your own family, uh, caretaking for yourselves, and, this, and then exchanges trusting the father's process through that to depending on the state to subjugate other people to provide for you right that's very quick summation of communist socialist ideals that are antagonistic or contradictory to the father's torah his law his law about how humans should provide for themselves through the means of the earth in the same way he constantly attacks the diet of mankind right by try with multiple examples throughout scripture where this suddenly you know, people go and say that, oh, it must be horrible to eat meat. Mm-hmm. Now we see this in ancient Egypt as well as ancient <clears throat> India. Um, and it seems to be a common thing. And now it's being reintroduced to society in whole through the climate agenda change. Right now, they're literally making advertisements with celebrities in Hollywood to try to get you to eat bugs. So it's like they're, they're wanting you to step away from what the father said was good. So think about it like this. The father took his priesthood, the, the people that he wanted to be set apart the most, more than anyone. He wanted them to follow the law better and be set apart, holy and sanctified better than regular people in Israel, because they're the ones, the priesthood that had to step before the presence of God through the angel of the presence and actually minister that that meal on our behalf. Right. That meal consisted of animals. And he said that was good. He said it was righteous and holy. So this is where I would have to just say there's a lot of influences out there that try to get me to think the judgments of my creator are wrong. Yes. And, and I have to disregard those. And there's the whole aspect of pantheism and earth worship. And we're all just mammals. Anyways, we're all, we're just human animals. We're just mammals. We're all equal. It's not, it's unjust to, to have the concept of man having dominion over the animals. Um, there's a real offense taken there. And I speak as someone who used to believe that way. Okay. I never could have been a vegetarian, but I definitely saw the, I was, I was the hippie about it, you know, and um, that's the other thing. It's undermining the actual authority structure that the father himself set up on the earth. Also, a lot of people totally glaze over the fact that right there in the first chapter of Genesis, I believe it actually separates the livestock from the beasts. So there's an actual distinction right from the very first chapter of the book between animals that were made to be livestock. That means food. They were made to be, that, that's where animal husbandry is all, I mean, cause obviously we're not husbandry over, you know, the wild beasts, you know, the tigers and the lions and stuff, but 
the animals he clearly that are docile that are yeah. clearly designed to work with cattle dogs that yeah. you know and that those need, dogs that need you to clean their hooves right out. need you to cut their hooves like there's all these things that that if they're just i mean they need you to um sure. shear their wool yeah. all these things that if animals or if humans aren't there to care for those kinds of animals they can't live they'll eventually die so there's this whole aspect of the actual order of creation that really it's spelled out for you there. But I think, like I said, because we're all kind of programmed to think nobody was eating meat in the garden and the whole goal is to get us back to the garden. Is that what scripture said though? No, exactly. no, not yeah. at all. Scripture it's an doesn't assumption. say that. It's, it's totally an assumption. It, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Our emotional attachment to that concept, I feel like is the root of all the other emotions that come out of it that keep us wanting to believe that at some point we won't be killing these animals to eat them. Yeah. It's a lot of deception out there. Yeah. Um, thank you for your question. Obed. We have uh, another question from seeking confirmation. He's asking, will the end times be like the days of Noah and the days of lots? Yeshua says, uses the phrase, the days of Noah, which I think were probably technically different than the days of lot. Yeah. Uh, there was only five cities yeah. in the days of lot. I don't know if it was the whole entire world. Yeah. At that point. But well, there's also some dis discussion about, um, you know, Noah living, you know, further in, in, into the, um, into the days of no, no, 350 okay. years after the flood, meaning that you're going to have that same type of wickedness that Noah witnessed before the flood from the, you know, unclean spirits who then lose their bodies to disembodied giants who become unclean spirits after the flood who are perpetrating deception still upon mankind, leading to the behavior we see in Sodom and Gomorrah during the days of Lot. So same as the Tower of Babel. Um, but ultimately in Matthew 24, you know, Yeshua does talk about the, the end will come as it was in the days of Noah, people eating, drinking, giving in marriage, and then the flood came and swept them all away. Basically meaning there will be a deceived class of people that don't, you know, they're just trying to live life as normal, and then the destruction comes upon them. Um, this is why I believe earlier in that passage in Matthew 24, Yeshua talks about the coming of the Son of Man being like lightning striking from the east to the west. It happens quickly, right? This is what we always try to remind people in, in um, Revelation 1, um, where John, seeing the vision, says, "These are it's here is explained to him that these things must happen quickly. And a lot of people think because of the way it's worded and translating the English, they think, oh, it must have been AD 70, right? Because then they try to retro, they, they try to force the origination of the book of Revelation before AD 70. But that word in the Greek actually means to happen quickly, right? It doesn't mean to happen soon in chronology. It means to when these things happen, they're all going to happen quickly. And this is what we see when we start seeing the trumpets being blown. The 42 months starts. It's only yeah. 42 months. That's it starts to happen time. quickly. Yeah. Especially, you know, the day of the Lord, it happens super quick. The actual coming of the Son of Man is in one 24-hour day. And there's a, if you read all the details, put them all together, there's a lot going on in that one single day. It all happens quickly, right? So this is where that word tacos in the Revelation chapter one, that's what says these things must soon come to pass. That's the generic English translation. That word tacos in the Greek actually means it must happen quickly, speedily. Not that they would soon come to pass as in it's about to happen chronologically soon, but that when these things happen, it's a speedy event. Just like Yeshua tried to give it an example of, a metaphor of, by saying it's like lightning striking from the east to the west. Or referencing back to the days of Noah to say people are just going about their lives, eating, drinking and giving a marriage and the flood came and swept them all away. Right. It happens quickly. 
So um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen like a one of those videos of people in the Alps mountains and there's a landslide coming down the mountain. Flash um, flood. And they're all just like sitting there eating on the balcony of mm-hmm. some restaurant. And then they start to, oh, and they're yeah. all like, oh my goodness. And they just like literally it starts happening quickly. It was a big avalanche. Yeah. But they yeah. Have to jump up and leave their table, grab their kids. And like, here comes the snow. And that's just snow. Yeah. Right. Water f- would flow faster. So yeah, d- natural disasters coming to the son of man is going to happen super fast. Yeah, I think a lot of people picture the flood and picture just the sprinkling of the rain starting. And oh, it just, but it says he opened the floodgates of heaven. And then there were also the, um, the waters of the deep that came up. So that sounds like a pretty quick, um, that sounds like it would have been a pretty quick flooding and not just something that, oh, over the next few days, it started to rain and gradually rain flooded everything. Like he straight up opened the windows of heaven. (laughs) Diego has a question. Do you have any videos on Yahid and Esau? Uh, wow, these are two mixed ideas. I, I'm, I don't know how you're asking this, but these seem like two very different questions <laughs> as far as do we have any videos on predestination or do we have any videos on Yahid and Esau? Um, no, no. And for the most part, no. I, I had a Q&A a long time ago where I addressed predestination just in a, in a short answer, but I've never done like a full on video on it. So no to both. But in short, Yah does not like people who reject him and his commandments, whether you're Edomite, whether you're from uh, Canaan, whether you're from the United States, it doesn't matter. He loves people who love him by walking in his behavior and those who reject his behavior and do violence. He doesn't like them. Right. He wants to. He has a general extension to you to repent. He loves you in that regard because he created you. But as far as, you know, him saying, look, if you reject me, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll take you when you repent. But why are you rejecting me? I don't like you. Right. Like it's very simple. Um, he hasn't specifically chosen any one of its particular tribe and said, you know, I'm just going to hate you forever, regardless of what you do. So even if you were to be able to accurately trace someone as from Esau, if they repented, they would be grafted into Israel and be loved by the father. It's that simple. There is no eternal. Maybe that's what he meant by the predestination, thinking that. Everyone that's born now in the line of Esau is predestined to be hated by God. Maybe that's what he means. I don't know. Either way, um, no. It, repentance is, is what the Father asks all of mankind to do. It's the general admonition, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. It's the whole duty of man to keep the commandments of God. Right. So if you are not doing that and rejecting him willfully, intentionally, here you are, found yourself in a place where you become an enemy with God. But if you repent and start doing his behavior, which are the commandments he lays out with an abundance of prophets, in the scriptures, then he, you walk in love with the father. That is how that's, that's what he promises you. Right. And so he wants, he wants that he, he sends that call out to all mankind. And so therefore, um, hopefully that's a decent answer with what I could glean from your question. Matthew Whitworth is asking, does Hebrews six mean going back into intentional sin after being saved causes a permanent loss of salvation? All right. So I'm going to have to look this up on my phone because my share screen option is not working on the laptop right now. Um, I want to read Hebrews 6 again because I don't have it memorized. I just want to make sure that I'm not misunderstanding a certain passage that might be in Hebrews 6, basically. But um, I I guess in a way, I I kind of addressed some of the the premise of this question with my answer in the last question about repentance. You know what I mean? But... um, yeah, there's a lot in Hebrews 6. It's a big chapter. I'm sure he's probably talking about the, the passage that says... The following um, way. Mm-hmm. Um, if we continue in sin, 
after coming to knowledge of the truth. I'm assuming that's the verse that he's talking about. Maybe he goes back into intentional sin. Um, I, I think of things like the, you know, um, Manasseh repented at the end of his life. Um, that was wonderful. God accepted his repentance. Um, I think of Peter in the interactions with Yeshua, where he, you know, he was being discipled, and uh, Peter was, you know, I, I hated that people say that they 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 claim that Peter had like an anger problem just because he's the one that grabbed the sword and started swinging. He thought he was defending his his uh, his master. His master, yeah. Right? He thought he was defending the Messiah from unjust. Um, brutality or, or legal enforcement of apprehension and illegal arrest, um, that was very intentional. And that was not righteous. Yeshua had to tell him to stop. He healed the man whom he hurt. You know what I'm saying? So like that was, and he was going to kill people. Yeah. So I don't think Peter lost his salvation in that moment. That was very intentional. That was not an accident. He just didn't accidentally draw his sword out and start swinging at people's faces. Like that, that was very intentional, right? So, and that was not, um, that was sin. It was not asked, required, or, you know, Yeshua even warned him multiple times before in the chapters leading up to, all the way back in Mark 8, 31, he started preaching that Yeshua would be betrayed by the chief priests, elders, and scribes, apprehended and put to death, right? Even a few days before that Garden of Gethsemane moment, he had to reprimand Peter already for, get out of my way, Satan, because I'm on my way to do what the Father's called me to do. And Peter tried to reprimand Yeshua, said, we're not going to let you go to Jerusalem and get killed. And Yeshua was like, get out of my way. <laughs> I've got a thing to go do. The Father's asked me to do this. And so to me, like that seems very intentional, but let's look real quick. Maybe it's in, in um, verse four. It's impossible for those who've been once enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and then have fallen away. To be restored to repentance because they themselves are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to open shame. So to me, what comes to mind in this, because you're asking if we go back into intentional sin after being saved, I would say all of us, even after the moment of coming to faith in the Messiah and repentance and wanting to walk in the ways of the father, all of us are still going to struggle with, some intentional sin here and there. And I'm not talking about going and being an abortionist at an abortion clinic, that kind of intentional sin. I'm, you know, I'm talking about the things that all, all of us struggle with sinful thoughts, um, you know, uh, murder in your heart, hating someone in your heart. Like there's, there's a lot of things that you're still going to struggle with as a human on this side of the resurrection. And that's why there's literally provision in the Torah for unintentional sins, sins of ignorance. And intentional sins. It's both. So we're covered by our Messiah under both. Um, what I picture when I hear this is people who claim to be Christian and then they were eventually bewitched by the anti-missionaries to outright deny the Messiah, deny Yeshua, go out from under his covering and his authority. I mean, that's what I picture with that. I don't think it's just about going back to intentional sin. Yeah, every, everyone still struggles with sin until... So until the glorified and made perfect. But ultimately, I mean, for, well, let's start here. The Greek word that's used for the falling away, if that's exactly what you're replacing that term, falling away with intentional sin, which is why I was trying to, yeah, which is why I said everything before I opened up the scripture, right? Because I, you're, you're inserting your own term, Matthew, into this question that's not used in, Matt, in uh, Hebrews 6. So if you're talking about the falling away, that word is the peripipto in the Greek, and it means to abandon. Right. So to abandon the faith would be like Judas. 
right? He abandoned the mission, the call, the faith, the gospel, the kingdom, yeah. the promise of the Messiah. He sold him out. He didn't trust that Yeshua was going to accomplish what he promised he would. He abandoned the faith. And Yeshua made a very ominous statement about Judas. You know, better they not be born, right? Because what he did was to abandon the faith. And guess what? Judas qualifies perfectly for everything that we just read to describe this, this whole concept of what is the enlightened taste of the heavenly gift who shared in the Holy Spirit. What Judas was one of the 12 that was sent out yeah. by, by Yeshua in Matthew 10 to go and heal people. And he went out and healed people and casted out demons. Yeah. They came back with a, with a wonderful report in Matthew 10 and Luke 9. So like he did, he, he tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. What's the powers of the coming age? That all believers would have the opportunity to go out, heal the sick, trample over spirits, have raise authority the on dead, the earth, raise the, the dead, leopards. all those things that are promised of the new millennial reign. Uh, those disciples under the authority of Yeshua in that moment got to go experience that in a very real way. And Judas still abandoned it, right? So this would be why he um, was spoken of like he was by Yeshua. Yeah. I think it's a little bit different than just going and doing intentional sins. Like we all don't fool yourself, bro. We all do intentional sins after salvation. Yeah. Literally, David is praying in the Psalms salvation. to keep me from willful sins, O God, right? In Psalm 51. So he's asked God to cleanse him and create a pure heart with him and a willful, steadfast spirit because he's struggling with willful sins, right? So even after David willfully took Bathsheba, and murdered, set up the murder of Uriah. Yeah, that's right. After that, he repented and Yahweh told him, and Yahweh spoke of David as a friend of God. So like, that's, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. I would just uh, call to your remembrance, the parable of the sower, or excuse me. Um, is that, um, that's the parable of the sower, right? Yeah. With the seeds that go into the four different kinds of heart. Yeah. Yeah. So there's four different kinds of hearts, you know, and some of these people don't have the you know environment within their heart or the environment in their world um, chokes out the the roots that are trying to come out of the seeds i mean some people um the cares and the worries of the world will choke out that little mustard seed of faith that's planted so yeah i mean that's why this is a, a spiritual practice that's why we're you know we have to stay diligent and endure until the end because the race isn't over until we go down to Sheol. Yeah. Um, it's one of those deals where you can still repent, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. Like, yeah. you could have a situation in your life where you're struggling with something, even after you've come to the saving knowledge of Yeshua, as, as it's mentioned in the epistle letters. Um, but you still aren't perfect yet. Like, you're still working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're still practicing to overcome uh, the bad, the bad parts that you're still struggling with. Right. And so this isn't something that any, the father knows that you're not going to just, because you've confessed him with your mouth and believe in your heart that suddenly you're all your behavior is perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would just uh, make sure we're, when we refer to Hebrews six, I would just make sure we're segmenting properly as opposed to inputting our own ideas, or maybe these aren't your ideas, Matthew, maybe this is a sermon you heard, right. A, a pastor, um, that was teaching some very hard line issue of, you know, if you're at backsliding, you've abandoned the faith. Well, I don't know about that. Like it maybe means you're struggling in your discipleship process and you need better tutelage or you need, you need, you know, uh, better accountability or something like that. Like, you know, just, it might mean that you have a really bad teacher. Uh, and that's unfortunate because there's a lot of church atmospheres today 
that does not foster discipleship, they foster an experience to be inspired at the yeah. service, right? The lights, the fog, the inspirational messages, the anecdotal stories, the humor, the jokes, the laughter. Look, putting on a putting on a, a an engaging environment for people to come hear about God is not bad. But if you do not foster in a, a actual atmosphere for people to disciple, then suddenly you know you're gonna you run the risk of this. People being confused about yeah. what does it truly mean to fall away, right? They haven't abandoned God on their heart and their life. They're just struggling with some some things in the flesh, right? So this is where you need discipleship. Um, we try to address that from multiple angles. Hopefully, it's a decent answer for you, brother. Please put your questions in all capitalization, everyone, um, just in case you forgot the tradition so that we can easily see them and know that you're asking us a question. Yeah, we didn't say that at the beginning. And now there's no, there's no, none of them are in caps, maybe yeah. just a couple. Oh. Okay, Kelly, Kelly uh, Lutz is asking, uh, Shabbat Shalom, sister. She's asking, could you explain, please explain if there's a difference between Christian baptism and mikvah? Are they the same thing? How do we do it today? Thank you in advance. You want to start with this? Um, I would think obviously there's a difference in the idea of the tradition itself going and because a lot of mainstream Christianity teaches that that's the moment that you receive the Holy Spirit, which obviously I had this. I, if I didn't have the spirit, I wouldn't have wanted to go get baptized. Like for me, that's as a, as a, an antichrist person that I was, I had to have the spirit before I had the urge to go be baptized. Um, as far as how it compares to mikvah in the Old Testament, I there's not a whole lot of description of mikvah per se in the Old Testament other than washing with water before approaching the tabernacle, washing with water to be clean before you're going to do the service right. of the Lord. Since we aren't in the situation of having the tabernacle, I don't see anything wrong with baptism as an outward symbol right. of your inward change. I felt a, a real... Um, call and urge to be baptized after I had my experience with Christ. And I think that could only come from God. The Old Testament uh, mikvah, which is to cleanse yourself before coming to the temple, was an outward show that you were preparing your heart to go stand in the presence of Yahweh. So like it literally is the same idea. It just has different trappings in the New Testament church with no temple and they're, they're not always near a water source. So then they do it, whatever, like they're not always near an actual river. Um, and so all I'm trying to say is like the old Testament baptism concept. I, I try to go over this in my new Testament context for pastors video, Matthew chapter one through three, we break down the baptism idea and just show that when they had to, like you just said, go cleanse themselves. So they could get ready to go before the temple as clean that was them showing they're willing to be repentant. They're willing to cleanse their heart and their mind and be ready to go confess their sins to the priest, provide their sacrifice and, and, you know, be, get their atonement yeah. right before the father. So in modern days, since we don't have the priesthood set up, there's no temple set up. People are not bringing sacrifices for We depend on our heavenly uh, high priest in the heavenly temple, Yeshua, to hear our prayers so for us to symbolically on the outwards to say, I, I want to cleanse myself because this shows that internally I've made the decision to cleanse myself. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think so also, it's kind of the same thing. It's just different trappings today. Yeah, I think there's a little bit more of a, a ritual that goes on with Christian baptism. Obviously, I'm not sure that every time they went to the temple, they had a priest in the water with them holding his hand up and saying, I baptize you in the name of. I'm pretty sure that wasn't yeah, happening. It was just a ritual washing. Yeah. Um, 
so I would say that's probably the biggest difference is that nowadays it's more of a tradition and a ritual as part of the Christian faith, um, representing when a person comes into faith or when a person feels like they've been in a slump in their faith and they've had their faith renewed. I've seen a lot of people get baptized more than once um, in situations like that. So I would say that's probably the biggest probably the biggest difference is that nowadays it's not an actual ritual washing before we enter the area of the tabernacle. It's an outward show of faith when we convert basically, or when we reconvert or however you want to, however you want to look at that when someone does it more than once, but yeah. Okay. We're going to go to another one real quick. Arturo M is asking the uncovering of Noah's nakedness by him means that he slept with Noah's father. No, Noah's wife. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Not Noah's, Noah's father. Noah's, Noah's wife, yeah. Noah's father. Just as been Yeah. Just as terrible. Um, so no. Um we've we've gone over this so many times. I don't think I have a specific video on this. Um, I did address this in my What Do You Know About Jubilee series on Kingdom Cast, chapter six through ten. I'm sure we probably addressed it in that portion too. Because that's in one of the that's in one of the Genesis portions. Yeah, it's probably in the Genesis six through nine portion. Long story short, go read Jubilees chapter seven through nine. Um, the big narrative that's preached with this is that Noah, once he's laying naked in his tent, Ham saw him and went outside, told his two brothers. The two brothers were the ones that walked in backwards with a, with a cloak or a blanket to cover up Noah's shame. Um, and then once Noah woke and found what he did to him, he, he said, curse be Canaan. So Canaan is not Ham. Canaan was the son of Ham. And what I try to show by breaking down Jubilee 7 through 9 is that Canaan was already born when this happened. The big narrative that is pushed by this theory is that um, Canaan was the baby as the result of Ham sleeping with his mother, which is Noah's wife. Right, and the misunderstanding comes from later on in places like Leviticus where there are instructions not to sleep with your mother's... Well, not... Your father's wife is what right. you're not supposed to sleep with. So it wasn't just about mother and son because there were, could have been multiple wives. So, and it talks about you have uncovered your father's, you have uncovered your father's skirt is how it's put yeah. um, when you do this. Not you saw your father's nakedness, right. not that your father was laying naked, drunk in a tent. Right. It's, you know, and so people take that verse from later on in scripture in the story and apply it back to Genesis, because in their minds, they don't immediately notice the problem there that first of all, it was wrong for the son to look upon the father's nakedness. There's a reason that we're, we wear clothes. Um, and also he went out and he gossiped about it to his brothers yeah. instead of respecting his father and covering him up or just leaving him. And then the brothers clearly show the respect you were supposed to be exhibiting, right. which is to walk in backwards, not even right. try to cover your own. You walk in backwards and you cover your father. So the interpretation that's imposed isogetically onto the text is that even though it tells you it was Noah who laid uncovered yeah. and that Japheth and Shem walked backwards to cover their father, yeah. they still ignore those words and say it was the mother. And you're like, no, it says it was Noah. Like it's code. Then, this is code words. Yeah, because this is what we call uh, zeitgeist hermeneutics, right? So it's kind of a silly play on words for theological application. But where you take a, a, story, a, a phrase like uncovering his father's nakedness and uncovering his father's skirt in Leviticus mm -hmm. 18, and you try to match them together because they sound they sound similar. similar yeah. This is why we call it zeitgeist hermeneutics. Kind of like, it's a joke. It's saying like, you know, like uh, the zeitgeist, uh, which has been widely debunked, but the zeitgeist theory was that, oh, Amun-Ra 
must mean amen. Or right? son of God is actually S-U-N of it means, God. It means Helios, the sun god, right? So it's just, a, it's a yeah. stupid phonetic homophonic, not homophobic, <laughs> homophonic connection of ideas that sounds, terms and words that sound similar that people go, oh, this sounds like this, so it must be connected. And you're like, that's not how definitions of words work. Meaning the text clearly tells you Noah laid uncovered. Ham and Japheth covered Noah. The mother's not in this story. And of course, where this goes is that the son that was, they claim Canaan was the son that was produced from Ham taking his mother sexually. And so that's why Noah cursed Canaan, the son of Ham, because they only have the Genesis account. If they had the Jubilees account, you would see that Canaan was already born. He was yeah. two years old. So this is when this when this friction happened between Ham and Noah. Ham took his four kids and left the area and stopped living around his father. So this is why, you know, and I try to expound, expound, if you will, in, my, in those videos to explain that Noah is mad and cursing Canaan because Canaan is, is basically like um, he ends up becoming the most rebellious children of Ham even to the point of going and, and through murder and sedition, trying to take the land granted to Shem. This is why at the beginning of this question on Turo, I said, go read Jubilee seven through nine, because when you read seven through nine, not just seven, where it parallels the Genesis nine story of Ham. Um, but if you read seven through nine, you get more detail about how the friction with Canaan escalated later as a result of him being disobedient, like the example of his father, Ham. Yeah, and also we are forgetting that Genesis isn't a, a minute by minute account of historical events. There's a lot of things that happen in a small little paragraph and some details aren't in there. And so it may not have been that literally Noah woke up in his tent and just in that moment in the anger from that incident said, curse be Canaan. I mean, could have been a prophecy he was delivering because it clearly was later on. Canaan ended up inviting the curse upon himself through the sedition of taking the land that wasn't his. So the, the admonition of Torah, which Noah followed Torah, guys, the admonition of Torah that's expounded to us in Deuteronomy 6, 6-9, is that the fathers should teach their sons Torah, right? Their children should learn from the good example of their fathers. If Ham is not a good example for his children, well, then Noah is seeing this as a righteous man of God. Noah, the grandfather, is seeing you're not training up your children in the right way because you yourself are rejecting my authority and dishonoring me as your father. You're not keeping Torah yourself. It's not in your heart either. So what's going to become of your children, right? So yeah. this is why you, and we see out of all of Ham's kids, yeah. Canaan is the worst, right? And he also rejects the authority of Noah in chapter nine and starts to go steal Shem's land for himself. So this is, there's a lot there. Check out Jubilee 7 through 9. Um, and it'll give you more well-rounded information from, a, instead of the speculation that people have just taken from Genesis alone. So if it, that helps. I just have to say, it's really sad that we are so far removed from that idea of that kind of respect for your parents and modesty with our naked bodies that the simplest, most obvious answer is not the one that we immediately see in there. We don't see the lesson of, oh, this is about disrespect of your parents and gossip. <laughs> you know, like we were so removed from those concepts that we were looking for a story that literally isn't even there. It's just my social commentary for the day. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to 
refresh and make sure I'm not missing up. There's a lot of questions here, guys. Thanks for your patience. <laughs> Making sure we get back to the question and don't skip other questions. <clears throat> All right, we're going to have to go faster if we want to address more questions because there's, <laughs> there's a lot. Hey. There's a lot. It's me. I know. It's all uh, you, babe. Let me, let me rephrase it. I'm going to have to go faster. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. If your kids are in the room, you may want to ask them to step out. We'll give you about 10 seconds before we answer this next question. Just anyone listening, just want to let you know, just a adult, adult language, adult content warning. <laughs> Well, so teenage this, content. Yeah, well, Abba Visual is asking, Leviticus 1528, a woman counts off seven days after her flow, then can become clean. Do we need to wait seven days after the flow to do it? So Leviticus 1528, do you want to you read that? Yeah, let me go back because it's 20. It's not, um, it's not, what did she say? 1528. Okay, I was looking at 18. Uh, this is from the Brenton Septuagint. But if she shall be cleansed from her flux, then she shall number to herself seven days, and afterwards she shall be esteemed clean. And on the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves and two young pigeons and shall bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of witness. Um, we need to get back to the verse that actually talks about um, intercourse during Leviticus 15. Yeah, I know. Let me just go to the NASP because I think it'll be easier. Where is it? Sorry, are you trying to look it up to address to make sure she's she's yeah. summarizing the text? Properly? I'm just looking it up for my own, okay. you know, to remember. Let's see. Well, while she does that, I just want to give a quick um, general disclosure that the idea of becoming clean and unclean in a big sense was that they were, especially in this narrative here with the Israelites in the desert with the traveling tabernacle with them, they were they were. Um, in constant interaction with the tabernacle and the power of the angel of presence that was with them and overseeing that tabernacle. Okay. So this is why they, it was a huge, huge deal for them to be clean um, before they came forward. But let's, let's just the context. Okay. So because we've the, talked about this the seven days of the menstrual cycle are actually addressed in the passages above. Mm -hmm. Then we get down to verse 25 and this is about if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity. Okay. So by the time you get down to verse 28, this is talking about after a discharge that's not so different, her different type of bleeding discharge. for some other reason. Right. Okay. So that's when it mentions because it already addresses if a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. So that's verse 24. So that whole menstrual, the time of menstrual impurity, as well as if a man were to sleep with a woman during the time of her menstrual impurity is all addressed before we even get to this verse 28. That's actually after addressing what's not her menstrual impurity. And as a general practice, Lindsay and I do not have relations during that time. Yeah, we go seven days because that seems to be what's clearly out in scripture. I, I do see the context of her being deemed clean is so she can bring that sacrifice to the, to the tabernacle. Same with the man. Who it's not her being unclean and now she can lie with her husband again. There's even, uh, there's clearly a provision for in case he lies with her. And I'm sure all women out there know, sometimes you don't realize you're on that time of the month. 
Yeah. Um, and so there's provision in there because there's a difference between that where it happens unintentionally and actual occult witchcraft that involves purposefully yeah. doing uh, SEX magic during that particular time of month. So that's a, a different action being addressed in a different chapter. So her needing to be clean for seven days after the seven days of the menstrual cycle is so that she's clean to go bring her sacrifice to the tabernacle. But the context of verses 25 to 28 is a different type of bleeding. Right. It's a discharge that's not your menstrual cycle. So. Reminds me of the Gospels, right? And the lady with the issue of blood reached yeah. out to the tassels of Yeshua and became cleansed. What was it 12 years she had an issue of blood? Yeah. So... <laughs> if she's living in a strict society that is following the cleanliness laws and she constantly had an issue of blood, does that mean she's not having sex for 12 years? I don't know about that. I don't know if she was married or what her story is. Well, let's, <laughs> let's say she's married and, and they're actually trying to follow Leviticus because they're living in first century Israel. Um, and her father and her husband's like, hey, uh, you're bleeding again. That means we got to wait till you stop bleeding and then wait seven days after you stop bleeding. Uh, because I got to go to the temple all the time. I feel like pregnancy would happen a lot more rarely if it was a whole 14 days day period, just with the okay, way that so the... I, I wasn't trying to conflate the actual menstrual cycle. I was talking about the issue of blood. Yeah, I know. Okay. So I just, but you jump back to the menstrual cycle. So I just want to make sure to not confuse uh, the, the sister asking the question of just, so all I'm trying to say is the lady with the issue of blood in the New, in the New Testament that reached out to Yeshua and got healed. If she was married and if the if her family was practicing Levitical laws, then that means she would have we don't know like if what's the issue of blood mean? Well, clearly the the verses that we just read from Leviticus 15, 25 through 28 is an issue of blood outside of your menstrual cycle. Are we clear on that? Yeah. Okay. So if that's the scenario in the context, then that and if that woman was married, that would have been a huge inconvenience for her life and for her relationship with her husband meaning who knows how often they ever got to have sex, right? So we just don't know if that's the same issue of blood being mentioned in the New Testament as in Leviticus. And if it was, that was definitely, if she wanted normality in her life to be healed and have a good whole relationship with her husband, she definitely wanted that healed, right? Because otherwise, how many issues of blood can you have for 12 years and not die? Yeah. Like how, how much can you bleed and not die? Right. So like this, you know, I'm not trying to be funny or humorous, like it's a legit scientific medical question. Right. Like what what is this? Well, Leviticus uh, even tries to address it. Unfortunately, it's not super in depth. Um, it's not super in depth as, as how it answers it. But um, it definitely mentions two different scenarios for when a woman actually would have to deal with any kind of blood coming out of her. Yeah. Just refrain for the seven days. And if if you happen to have a longer flow. You know, refrain for the for the amount of days that you're on your period, and then you should be fine after that. Hopefully, it's a decent answer for you. Okay. Dominic Alemani, Alemani is asking, my question is, after the resurrection and Yeshua's reign and kingdom of God, he's asking, the, do the people outside the kingdom die? And if so, what happens when they die? After the resurrection and Yeshua's reign, yeah, so they die, and then they're going to wait for the second resurrection of Revelation 20, 11 through 15, right? So that they have to be raised to stand final judgment, the great throne, the great white throne judgment, as it's referenced. Um, they'll either be given eternal life at that point, like the like the first resurrection, right? That's why they call it the first resurrection, because there's a additional resurrection for the rest to, to clean up all the other peoples and details. 
um, or they are thrown like a fire and destroyed forever. So it's um, it's it's that's what the second resurrection would be for. Is this is why Paul in Acts twenty one, excuse me, Acts twenty four. Um, I can't remember the exact verse, but in Acts 24, as he's standing trial before the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, I'm on trial because I preached the resurrection of the wicked and the righteous. Well, there's two resurrections of the righteous. There's what's called a first resurrection at the beginning of the millennial reign. And then there's that second resurrection of the righteous at the end of the millennial reign. So that's going to be everyone who didn't get involved in the first resurrection that is considered righteous, depending on when they died. Would be involved in the second resurrection so these are the these to our understanding would be the people that are repopulating the earth throughout the millennial reign living as mortal men outside the kingdom of heaven whom are learning from the resurrected glorified priesthood of saints who live inside the kingdom of heaven as they interact with the new jerusalem which has descended to the earth for a thousand years they interact with the new jerusalem and learn torah this is isaiah 2 2 through 5 in the last days the chief mountain of the lord will be raised above all the other mountains and all the nations to stream to him to learn his law the torah the law will go forth from zion um people will no longer war with each other and they'll go to the law the mountain of god to learn the statutes and judgments of the father right so this is how there's peace on the earth um and so people that do die during that time would wait till the end of the millennial reign when there's a second resurrection of the righteous. Yeah, they'll go to Sheol just like we do now. This is why at the last resurrection of Revelation 20, uh, <laughs> it says that death and Hades and Sheol uh, give up its dead and, and then there is no more reason for Sheol. So there'll be no more people going to the cavern within the earth to wait resurrection because that, that's kind of what we mentioned a little bit earlier in, in, a, in an answer to a question that after the second resurrection at the end of the millennial reign, Everyone throughout all of time who will have be resurrected will have been resurrected at that point. So that's why there's two. So there's anyway. Hopefully that's the decent answer for you. It's a big question. We've we've gone over it a lot. I've actually have a video on Kingdom Cast says uh, who's in the second resurrection. I think it's what it's titled. Yeah, there you go. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Hannibal. He's got it right there for you. So good to have you back. Yeah, Hannibal. good to see you again. Hannibal. <laughs> You're one of our best mods. Okay, Tom, Tom Ferrarello, Ferrarello. Um, he's asking 1 Corinthians 11, 10, talking about a man in marriage or a physical covering to conceal from angels. Talking about a man in marriage? Well, let's pull up, let's pull or it up. physical covering to conceal for angels. Pretty sure it's the verse we're referencing that women cover their hair, even angels. But, um, yeah. Just, just as a quick reference, Paul, if he's referencing uh, the angels who rebelled before the flood, didn't matter if they were married or not. This is what Genesis 6-4 and Julius 5 says. They took wives of whomever they chose. Yeah, and your your uh, reference, verse 11 says, however, verse in the... 10, 11, 10. Oh, okay. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And symbol of... A symbol of is actually in italics, so that's like an, a translator insertion to, in their minds, make the sentence make more sense, I guess. So without those insertions, it would say, therefore, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. So, yeah, it, it could very well easily be a covering of a man. I know a lot of people, a lot of teachers like to say, this is where it gets sticky, right? Because you see some Torah teachers say, well... If to the single women on your covering, you know, if you're using the word covering in the sense that you're trying to learn the scriptures better from someone, 
and they're teaching you and you're willing to learn from them. But as far as like a, that's not the same as having like a spiritual covering in the house. I know of Messianic fellowships that tell women they don't have to wear a seat seat because the men in the fellowship are their covering. And I'm kind of like, mm, yeah, I didn't see anything relating seat seat to a quote covering. Yeah. That's a little communal. Um, that doesn't sound like, so. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a solid application of number 15. I think, for women who are maybe wondering about it, you know, the where I've settled on it is there's no command for women to cover their hair. There was obviously a long standing cultural practice of women covering their hair all the way back to, uh, I mean, Isaac and Rebecca. I mean, we see Rebecca putting a veil over her head. So as a cultural practice and a symbol of modesty, I think that's been something that's been part of the faith community for as long as the faith community has been around. I think it's rather a new thing for women to not be covering their hairs. But again, it's a, it's a cultural, it's a cultural practice in my opinion. So I cover as I feel led. I don't cover, you know, cause I think I'm commanded to. So. Norma Del Santos is asking, is modern day vitiligo, the skin loss pigment disease, a curse? Is it Miriam's curse? Miriam was given leprosy. Yeah, specifically plague. We, we actually have a um, one of our kingdom portions. We address what happened with Miriam um, and why it happened. And it is in Leviticus 12, I believe, our kingdom portion. See if I can find that. Um, one second. See if I can find it and put it in the live chat for you real quick. Yeah, we talked about that. But no, to answer your question, I don't think it is. Mm -mm. Um, because what happened with Miriam is very different. And... Uh, yeah, um, when we started going through Leviticus we and started researching what is called leprosy today, it's well known that what's called leprosy today isn't the affliction of the scriptures. And that affliction seems to be directly related to disobedience within the camp of the father, like literally in his presence, if there was sin, it was like this it's like some sort of physics going on that we don't understand as humans yet um, that would cause the, this, these plagues to break out among the people. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of, so modern David Oligo. No, I would not put that in the category of leprosy. Sorry. I dropped a link in the chat for you, Norma. I'm sorry. I kind of messed up the title with it, but um that would be the video that we, we break down leprosy in great depth. Um, actually, that and the following Keenan portion right after that for the following week, they'll be in the playlist right next to each other. Um, we break down leprosy in great depth as far as scriptural examples. It was actually a two-part Keenan portions that we did that year because of this topic. It's such a big topic, which is why the quick answer is no. The long answer is a long answer. And we try to explain to you what biblical leprosy was, how the language has changed over time with the actual word used in the text, um, and just to show the examples throughout scripture of what biblical leprosy was versus modern day skin diseases. Okay. Hopefully check that out when you have a chance. Man, it keeps refreshing and it's not helping me. Um, yeah. Just think about when we're in the kingdom and all those people that survived the day of the Lord that aren't resurrected and the state that they're going to be in and their total lack of knowing of the commandments and things like that. Think about all of them coming to the holy city where the father and son are dwelling on earth with us and his actual presence being, yep. you know, there. Yeah. 
and well, and how we're told to work to cleanse the lepers while we we're not cleansing lepers right now one of the first things that i suspect that glorified resurrected saints will be doing in their new priesthood position under yeshua's authority in the new jerusalem will be going to the gates of the new jerusalem and healing mortal mankind with that are riddled with leprosy yeah because they came super unclean yeah. uh, from a war-torn destroyed earth to this beautiful pristine new jerusalem the garden of god the paradise of god as revelation calls it and they're coming there for refuge for food water resources medicine provisions and I think one of the first things the glorified saints are going to be doing in their priesthood position is going out to those those people in great need and just literally healing them of leprosy. That because of the interaction with the power of the city, the purity, the power of God, the power within that city, and then they come up unclean next to it, um, just in the mercy of the Father to keep those people alive. Because then they got to stand judgment for sheep and goats judgment. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like yep. it's like uh, you know it's like the the jailer making sure you got some some medicine so you can stand before the judge. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see that probably one of the first things we'll do is cure the lepers. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Um, I'm sorry, Arturo. We're not going into Tartaria today. We went into it multiple times in different videos. Uh, sorry, guys, if I'm skipping some of your questions that are wholly unrelated. Um, I apologize. I don't know the origins of Aurora Borealis. I apologize, James. Um, uh, and let me see here. Let me see. We don't have any public Sukkot plans. Like, we don't have plans to go to any kind of big um, gathering anywhere for Sukkot. Uh, we have a, a close family that we're friends with that is considering coming to visit us uh, for Sukkot in Wyoming. Um, that's all we have planned so far. Uh, Miss Vicki, I'm so sorry. I don't understand your question. Could you please elaborate or make it? Um, could you please reword that? It's too short. I don't understand your question. Uh, guys, try to try to give us full questions, like a fully, you know, elaborated question. Don't just assume we understand what you're hinting at. Um, oh, well, thank you, Discipleship Dialogues. I really appreciate that. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for the super chat. I really appreciate that. It's a blessing. Uh, let me see here. I'm trying to scroll back up to see if we skipped over any other questions. There might be some questions in there that aren't in all caps, babe. I know. I'm trying to look for those too. Yeah, because James is asking about the Orbro of Alice. I don't have a clue. Um, Brian B is asking about land outside of Antarctica. I no way to tell. It's all speculation. I'm sorry, brother. Um, to me, honestly, that just comes across as another way for the enemy per to pervert the real truth and make you think that God didn't tell you exactly what he created when he created it. Um, and it's just more uh, something to speculate on. What are they hiding? Um, I think Antarctica is the ice wall. Um, you think Antarctica is the ice wall? Yeah. You, you mean... Yeah, I think it's the ice wall of the earth and the dome is somewhere, is somewhere past yeah, that. shortly past Antarctica. I don't think there's all kinds of mysterious land. Okay, QRIX9 is asking, is it wrong to deny yourself something by worrying about what will happen tomorrow? I would need to know what, what you're yeah, what are you denying yourself? referring to. Well, yeah, obviously, you should have told us, you know, do not worry about tomorrow. There's tomorrow worry about itself. There's enough cares in this day. You know, just focus on today. Um, he says that in the same general context of uh, Matthew 6 33 you know to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and then all these other things you worry about will be added to you um, we're living examples of that Matthew 6 33 
we're living it out right now. The Father is providing things to us that we struggled to get in the past because we decided we were going to focus on his kingdom and his righteousness, which his ways of behavior. And we started talking about it, teaching it after we learned it ourselves. And we're still learning it to some degree. But I mean, like, you know, after we became competent in understanding it, then we started talking about it, promoting it, teaching it. That's why on the bottom of my screen here, guys, this is why I have Matthew 24, 14 at the bottom of my little banner. You know that this gospel of the kingdom will go be preached to all the, all the world and then the end will come. Right. So this is the focus of seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Right. That's the behavior of the kingdom of God. This is the Torah, the law of God, the commandments. So we're living examples of that. Um, so I, I guess your question depends on what are you denying yourself yeah. that you're worried about tomorrow? Seek first the kingdom of God. And if that means denying yourself of sin, awesome. Yeah. But if you want to have a piece of chocolate cake tonight yeah, and you want to deny yourself that because you're worried of what it'll look like on the scale tomorrow, I'd say have the piece of cake because you will get a new body at the resurrection. <laughs> J.O., how you doing, brother? J.O. is asking, what's our thoughts on the Nag Hammadi? Well, I used to love them when I was a New Ranger, and I wanted to think that I was one-upping Christians who don't know their own books, uh, but they're Gnostic. They're Gnostic texts. 15th they're not, century They're Egypt. not scripture. Yeah, that's, yeah. Or at least that's what it's dated back to is the 15th century Egypt, and um, it's not. I would not. We don't. We Ken and I won't even, like we haven't even been interested to even review it on Honor of Kings. I think you did the gospel. Easily... I think you guys did the gospel of Thomas. You debunked that one. Okay. I feel like you did the gospel of Thomas on. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's but, one of the yes, that's one of the books the, but in the, the general premise of like that collection of what it is. Yeah. Like we don't it's very easily discernible. Uh historical manuscript doesn't validate. Um Theology that's taught within it doesn't value. There, there's a lot of theologies out there, guys, that have parallels with the scriptures. That doesn't mean that they actually validate themselves. Well, know? and actually the gospel of Thomas most likely was was plagiarized from some of the synoptic gospels. So a lot of the things in there are just verbatim from the Gnostic gospels. But then there's a lot of uh, Gnostic ideas that are supplanted into it. So. Okay, so we have... TJ Checky is asking, was the Last Supper a covenant meal? So there's some debate on this. I know there's other friends of ours that disagree that the Last Supper, as it's commonly referred to by Christianity, that it was not, they think it was not Passover. Right. We personally, through Matthew 22, Luke 20, or excuse me, Luke 22, Matthew 26, um, and references in, in John, like it, it's literally like five to seven times it's called the Passover meal. Um, they go to prepare the Passover meal in previous verses. They go to, so to our understanding, it was the Passover meal, which is a covenant meal. So um, go down to Mr. Anderson real quick. Okay. This one here. Okay. So the question is, why do you consider Enoch to not be Gnostic, even the first book? This is where the word Gnostic just doesn't seem to have any meaning for people. <laughs> Gnosticism yeah. is an actual system of ideology it's a it's a theology and doctrine related to the demiurge yep. which they take the god of the bible the god of the old testament and they call him the demiurge and say that he is a created god he's not the creator of all things he's basically an angry childlike god who was mad about something and created humanity and imprisoned spiritual humanity in fleshly bodies that's not an enoch it's not, it's not. That's not the doctrine of that's taught in the first book of Enoch. 
And so, Mr. Anderson, her passion is not directed towards it's you. Not you no. but towards it's, in general, how many people take the word Gnostic? Yes, out of yes. And and yeah. it's frustration at the accusations that are always hurled to us regarding the, the Book of Enoch. Yeah. So it's not you. It's my it's my passion so, related to wanting people to know the proper definition of the word Gnostic and Gnosticism. And the Book of Enoch does not the first Book of Enoch. I can't speak for the other ones, but the first Book of Enoch that actually was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that is in the Ethiopian bible doesn't teach a demiurge who's not truly the creator who imprisoned mankind into fleshly bodies with the whole goal of us escaping mortal flesh that's not what's taught in enoch so mr anderson i'm not sure your history or familiarity with the book of enoch but there are a lot of pastors who don't like the book of enoch and they call it gnostic without mm -hmm. using the definition of the word gnostic yeah. and many of them haven't even truly read it or studied it I engage in an entire debate with someone like that. So there is, there is, I would just say, you know, wherever, whoever gave you that idea to ask Steve the question, you would just keep in mind, not specifically to you, Mr. Anderson, but just keep in mind to everyone listening. You, we love your questions. And many times our questions are formed by arguments we've heard from someone else. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at one right now that I'm, I'm not going to be able to answer from um, Michael Stevens is asking about a specific argument with Trinitarianism. Right. And that's a very specific argument that I've never heard posed before. Uh, Michael, I'm sorry, I, I don't have a good answer for you right now. I have to do more research on that. That's a very, very specific argument that someone else has clearly given you. Yeah, you would have to ask a Trinitarian, too, because we're yeah, not we're Trinitarians. Not. So but in the same vein, right, people do yeah. this all the time. They ask us questions from what someone else has loosely claimed. We love your questions. Never stop asking. Yeah. Let, me, let me finish. Let, never stop asking your questions. The person that makes those loose claims, ask them how they form their ideas. Don't don't hear something randomly and then go, you know, to someone else who claims to. Okay, so in this scenario, someone's denigrating First Enoch because they've been taught KJV is pure and unrefined. It's the only Bible we've ever had, regardless of it being in the 15th century. So they they're claiming that anything that's on the KJV today is must be Gnostic, right? So instead of you just going, well, this guy says Enoch is good. He did a whole contextual study guide on it. And he did a whole 14 episodes plus a special documentary on it on his channel. Um, so he, he must be the person to ask, is it Gnostic? Well, thank you for your question. And we'll gladly answer it. We'll always answer it like we just did. But also I want to hopefully encourage folks. When you hear these, these random claims about the scriptures in general, whether it's from an anti-missionary, whether it's from a hardcore Southern Baptist reformed Calvinist pastor who rejects first Enoch, or whether it's just someone saying, well, I don't understand, you know, people said that in heaven, we're not going to eat meat anymore, right? Well, ask them first, why have you come to this conclusion? What has formed your thoughts? And then you can, I promise you, I promise you nine times out of 10, they cannot back up their claims. They're just parroting and repeating something they heard or something they read on a post. So that's our first practice, I hope. If we're going to be competent believers who are investigating claims and in, in in this world is, is full of random quotes that are out of context or random accusations or claims that cannot be backed up. So that you'll see me do this in the debates with pastors, right? They'll make a statement. I'll say, okay, well, where are you getting that information? What scripture are you going off of? Let's define that word. Yeah, and that, they get super triggered at that point because yeah. they can't because they don't. They then realize immediately and live that they're just <laughs> regurgitating something that they've been told, and they never really asked whoever told them to prove it, right? So this is where this I promise you, you'll weed through a ton of confusion 
quicker, especially if I can't do a lot of live streams and you can't come and ask a question or maybe you had a question for me today. I couldn't get to it. Um, you emailed me a question. I couldn't get to it because I just can't get to all of them. And go to the person making the claim. Say, how are you forming your ideas? What led you to that understanding? That's step one. And then come ask me whatever you want. Well, and for me, I think my passion, it seems like annoyance. It's not annoyance. It's it's passion for wanting to address the whole body because it's not just your question. The whole body has a problem with throwing around words that they don't define. Yeah. And Gnostic is a huge one. And I was someone who was practicing Gnosticism and following those kinds of ideas and was confused by them at first when I actually came into faith in Yeshua and started believing in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. And the Gnostic scriptures were the ones that I actually went to when I first became a follower of Jesus because I didn't, I still was like programmed and brainwashed from my former new age life. And so I was thinking if I wanted to learn about him, I needed to go read the Gnostic text. So I bought a Gnostic Bible and I was reading through it and something was not sitting right with me while I was reading it, which I know now I had the spirit in me. Once I started reading the actual Bible, totally different. But because I know what that word Gnostic means and what that actual belief system is, I don't just throw that word around. I may call some sort of action satanic. I may say, you know, I may um, say there are certain books that are satanic or of the enemy, but I won't call like, for example, I wouldn't necessarily call um, the Hindu Vedas Gnostic texts. They're not. They don't teach Gnosticism. They teach Hinduism, which yeah. is a totally different religion. Still not of God. OK, but. You also wouldn't say to somebody, don't you think the book of Enoch is Hindu? Well, because you know what Hinduism is. You know that's a certain kind of religion, which is not associated with the book of Enoch. But because people don't actually know what Gnosticism is, and they've just heard pastors calling the book of Enoch Gnostic, and they've never actually gone over what that belief system even is, it's natural to just go start using that word to describe certain things that you think shouldn't be in the Bible or aren't of God or whatever. I want the whole community to recognize Gnosticism is an actual belief system that you can look it up and see what was actually taught under Gnosticism so that you're not falsely labeling a book Gnostic when it's really not. Because there are actual Gnostic texts out there. Yeah. So. <clears throat> uh, first book of Avani would qualify as a Gnostic text in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Because it literally tells that they only got flesh after they sinned. They were exactly, but there's it, it runs the line though because there's no quote demiurge. They're still supposed to be <laughs> prayer of heaven and earth. Sure, but it still has the same. It's narrative. got gnostic undertones for sure. It's got the same narrative as what happens to mankind. Yeah, um, and it makes Satan out to be a victim. Yes, <laughs> which yeah. is crazy. Um, all right. Yes, uh, T Miller or T Miller, T Miller. Um, should pastors get paid a salary? Yes. Um, regardless of whether you believe in their doctrine or not, pastors do a lot yeah. of work you don't see. They go pray with people. They do eulogies. Uh, they go pray with people in hospitals. Uh, they have to deal with giving extremely bad news. Yeah. I'm not even a pastor, and I've had to deal with a lot of these things myself. Yeah. So this is where, you know, yes, obviously, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, Paul tries to repeat the Torah from Jeremiah 24. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. So this is someone that's laboring and teaching and doctrine to help the body, as well as the other pastoral concepts, which is they go and pray with people, support people, organize the body, do whatever. Whether or not you believe in everything they teach doesn't matter. They're helping people and they're they're trying to be a minister uh, to people when they could have just went and got a different job with yeah. less stress and higher pay. So if you don't think they need to get paid, then you disagree with an actual priest of God because they also were 
instituted a salary by the father because they did the same type of actions. I'm not calling modern day pastors priests. There's a difference in definition of terms, and but the general concept of how they helped the body of believers was the same. Um, the priests of the Old Testament had an added responsibility for the temple, but when it came to interacting with the people, they were there to help them, to support them, to organize, to pray for people, to go cast out demons. To, so if you don't think that that, I'm, I'm not saying you do, you're just asking your own question, should we get paid or not? But a lot of people don't yes. think that they should, yeah. right? You guys, you spend a day in someone else's shoes, see everything they go through, see all the stuff they do behind the scenes just to get to the point to actually teach a message to you. Yeah, You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed at what they have to go through just to get to present it clearly with a good camera, with the coherent scriptures or, or understanding something to be able to address questions or to be able to have a small little building that can hold 20 or 30 people and to be able to go take time out of their day to go to the to the funeral home and meet with the family and pray with people or to go counsel, do what they can to counsel uh, people in a bad marriage that are trying to save their marriage. You know, yeah, if you don't, that's value, guys. That's value way beyond anyone drawn up blueprints for architecture for a big engineering firm. Yeah, they're worthy of their wages. Um, Jay, please rewind the video to hear us explain the, the Noah situation just this time with Ham. <laughs> the answer is no to your second um, your second part of that question. This no. one I think you might have a better grasp on if you can answer this one for Carrie. Um, Are there any support yeah. groups for Unoclea? Oh, marriage? that's not on Facebook. I only know of um, I only know of one on Facebook that I'm happy to email you the link privately because it's a closed group. So I don't want to just invite a whole bunch of people. Yeah. I don't want to just drop the link into the chat. If you would like the link to the Facebook group that I know about, I, we can send that to you via email. If you look for the um, email address and not the description, yeah. but I don't know of any that are off of Facebook. I apologize. Uh, thanks for the super chat, Caitlin. I really appreciate yeah, that. Thank you. Thank Bless you. So you. Yeah. <laughs> the way that it refreshes. It's like, yeah, it's, wait I, a minute. Lose all the, the placement. Yeah, guys, if we didn't get to your question today, just assume we didn't even see it because this, especially today, the chat is refreshing a lot more than I recall it on a regular basis. So we may just not have gotten to see it. Oh, that's okay. an easy one. <laughs> James Sims. If you're new to the channel, I would strongly suggest go check out our playlist. It's called um, the New Beginners Playlist. And um, you know what? I think I changed it to um, Kingdom of God Playlist. But, um, but basically, it's one of the first videos that we ever did on our channel. And it's uh, the gospel of the kingdom is not what you think, or the gospel is not what you think, part one and two. And I actually go over all the promises to Abraham as far as the kingdom come. I use a lot of scriptures. Long story short, between the, the Euphrates and the Nile, it's approximately a, a 14 to 1500 square mile at, uh, place where the New Jerusalem is going to set down, um, encompassing most of the Middle East, basically. Um, and that's the geographical location between the Euphrates and the Nile that is promised to Abraham. And within that, you're going to have uh, the New Jerusalem set down and be the, the center point of all the earth where all the nations will come to. So that's that's why that land is hotly contested. Yeah, that video was when I first realized that Sean and I were on completely different schedules. <laughs> so he was up to like three in the morning finishing that video. <laughs> yeah. Little did I know. That's how late you'd be up every networking. <laughs> I'm not complaining, by the way, guys. Yeah, speaking of speaking of uh, all the things you got to do to to present <laughs> teachings to people that people yeah. don't see. Yeah, 
He, yeah. When I, when I communicate to people that Sean works like 16 hours a day minimum, they're like, whoa. Now he's got two other projects that he's working on that are actual businesses. So that also takes up none of his time. But even before that, I mean, he was, you guys saw, he had like at least three videos a week. And he, I would be like, just turn on the camera and just wing it. Like if there's anyone who's capable of doing that, it's you. And he's like, no, I create a lesson. <laughs> he's very certain about um, the way that he teaches. So I see, I see the wisdom in that now, obviously. So. <laughs> and speaking of, uh, I think later today, either this evening or later, maybe even tonight, um, I'm going to be doing a kingdom cast. It's been a while since I've done a kingdom cast episode. So we're going to get back into new Testament context for pastors. We'll be doing um, Matthew 23. And uh, so I've got all those notes and slides prepared for later tonight. Stop liking. All right, guys. My dog has such bad allergies. I don't know if you can hear him. (laughs) I don't think they can. All right, guys, we're going to, we're going to cut this out. We're at an hour and 20 minutes. So um, anything you'd like to say before we go? Just thanks for joining us. We love you guys. We appreciate you guys. We appreciate all of your support, your prayers, your encouragement, just your love. We just, just really blessed by you guys. We really appreciate being able to serve you and yeah, just hopefully I'll feel like doing this next week too. And I'll see you next week. <laughs> yep. Yep. And uh, country dad, just answer your questions. He's asking about Galatians part two. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to get back to my, Matthew 23 or my New Testament context for pastors series on kingdom cast. Um, so do another installment on that. And then I've got another installment on our first Enoch series. And then after that is the Galatians part two uh, installment to cover Galatians chapter two. So, and more interesting commentary from Skip Heitzig. Is that what his name yeah. is? Or, um, so yeah, we'll be doing that Lord willing um, in the next seven days. So just got a lot happening right now outside of, outside of this so all right guys thank you so much thank you guys so much for the super chats thanks for being here uh thanks for praying for us that we continue to do this as long as we can we really you guys are amazing we thank you for all the good questions um moderators you're awesome thank you for being in the live chat and and being over here to help us out um with links and directions and answering questions even in the live chat when we can't get to them yet so you guys are amazing thank you so much love you guys all right we will see you guys soon see you later